Wednesday, April 20th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedo in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour, Russia launches all-out attack on eastern Ukraine as Kyiv vows to defend its territory. The Battle of Donbass has begun, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said on Tuesday as Russia unleashed thousands of troops in the east of the country. UN chief calls for, quote, humanitarian pause, unquote, in fighting between Russian and Ukrainian forces. A pause will allow for the safe delivery of life-saving humanitarian aid to people in the hardest hit areas such as Mariupol, Kherson, Donetsk and Luhansk. And South Africa's president declares state of disaster following deadly floods in KwaZulu-Natal province. We'll have these stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. Russia launched its long-awaited all-out assault on East Ukraine on Tuesday, unleashing thousands of troops. Ukraine describes the offensive as the Battle of the Donbass, a campaign to seize two provinces and salvage a battlefield victory. Louis Anax of Reuters has more. The Battle of Donbass has begun, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said on Tuesday as Russia unleashed thousands of troops in the east of the country. Speaking in an overnight address, Zelensky said Ukraine would withstand the all-out assault. Every life lost is an argument for Ukrainians and other free peoples, generation after generation, to perceive Russia exclusively as a threat. And any infrastructure can be restored and will definitely do it. The coal and steel producing Donbass has been the focal point of Russia's campaign to destabilize Ukraine since 2014, when the Kremlin used proxies to set up separatist people's republics in parts of the Luhansk and Donetsk provinces. Despite the looming threat, residents in Slovyansk, located in the Donetsk region, say they're staying calm for now. Right now, it's mostly calm here. Comparing to other cities, it's still good here. A lot of people have moved out. The city is empty. You can see it yourself. Sirens are on all the time. You can hear some explosions, but the town is intact. We were actually prepared for this. We received information of a planned mass attack and we are ready. For that reason, we were not shocked. We believe in our army and our victory and that the combat operations won't reach Sloviansk. In the first reported success of the new assault, Ukraine said the Russians had seized Kremena, a frontline town of 18,000 people in Luhansk. Moscow demands Kyiv cede the Luhansk and Donetsk provinces fully to Russian-backed separatists. It has given few details about its new campaign, but Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov confirmed that another stage of the operation is beginning. The operation in the east of Ukraine uh, is uh, uh, aimed, as was announced from the very beginning, to fully liberate the Donetsk and Lugansk republics. And this operation Russia denies targeting civilians in what it calls a special operation to demilitarize Ukraine. It has bombed cities to rubble and hundreds of civilian bodies have been found in towns where its forces withdrew. It says without evidence that those and other signs of atrocities were staged. That's Louis Anax of Reuters. As fighting rages in eastern Ukraine, the Pentagon is closely monitoring Russia's latest attempt to capture the Donbass region after failing to seize Kyiv. 
U.S. defense officials say Ukraine is receiving additional military aircraft and parts to repair others in its arsenal that are damaged or inoperable. For more, I spoke with VOA's Pentagon correspondent, Carla Bab. There has been two additional battalions going into Ukraine for a total of 78 battalions now. Um, senior defense officials warn, though, that this is a phase that is just a prelude to even further activity to come in the eastern Donbass. They said that, that things could get worse and the fighting could get heavier. It is clear to Pentagon that while they, they can't read the minds of the Russians, it certainly looks like they are trying to take the eastern region of Ukraine, and they really want to have that land bridge, as we have discussed before, the land bridge between Crimea and eastern Ukraine, and that includes the city of Mariupol, which is still very much contested. It is still in the hands of Ukrainians. They're fighting very hard to keep that city, and it has been under siege for weeks and weeks. What is the Pentagon's assessment of how well the Ukrainian troops are performing facing off with thousands of Russian troops. Well, the Ukrainians have performed very well. I was actually speaking to the head of the National Guard Bureau. He was pointing out that the California National Guard knew that the Ukrainians were going to do well because they've been training with them for years and years. And so while it was a surprise to many that the Ukrainians were so successful against the Russians' first offensive, at least the people who had been working with them knew that they were going to be better prepared than, than many others had anticipated. Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby reiterated today, in fact, the United States and many other allies across Europe continue to resupply the Ukrainians. So they have been trained on certain equipment. They have been provided with the equipment that they already know how to use. And they are being given the equipment that has proven most effective on the battlefield. So even though there are an overwhelming number of Russians, senior defense officials have said that the Ukrainians clearly have advantages as well. And never forget that they're on their home turf as well, which gives them another advantage. Some analysts are saying Ukrainians are facing off with one, if not the largest army in the world, and that it's just a matter of time before either Mariupol or Donbass falls into Russia. Is the Pentagon thinking about this? Do they have a contingency if this happens? Senior defense official has definitely pushed back on any assertion that Mariupol, that city that is contested, will eventually fall to Russian bombardment, that the east will eventually fall. They say that that's not predetermined and that it, you could just point to the first offensive to show that that is not predetermined. In fact, there was a pretty contentious back and forth today with reporters who were concerned that the Pentagon and the State Department and the White House are divvying out these supplies. You know, we hear announcements of 800 million going to Ukraine and 300 million of weapons going to Ukraine and 100 million of weapons going to Ukraine. One reporter asked, why aren't U.S. officials providing more at once? The Pentagon pushed back on that and said, well, they need first what they can absorb. You can't give them more equipment than they can handle. That was number one. Number two, the fight is changing. He said when we were talking just a few weeks ago, the main effort, the main concern of the international community was the push from the north out of Belarus, Russia's push on Kyiv, the capital of Ukraine. And since then, Kyiv was able to repel that attack, and now the force is coming in on the Donbass. Well, the Donbass, one of the things that they need is more artillery, and that's why you see the artillery, the howitzers that the U.S. are providing coming into that region now. That's VOA's Pentagon correspondent, Kalabab, speaking with me from the Pentagon.
UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres on Tuesday called for a four-day Orthodox Easter humanitarian pause in fighting in Ukraine. This to allow for the safe passage of civilians to leave areas of conflict and the delivery of humanitarian aid to hard-hit areas. Guterres said the United Nations is submitting detailed plans to the parties and is ready to send humanitarian aid convoys to Mariupol, Kherson, Donetsk and Luhansk. The relief deliveries will begin on Holy Thursday and run through Sunday, the date of Orthodox Easter, which is celebrated by most Ukrainians and Russians. The humanitarian pause would provide the necessary conditions to meet two crucial imperatives. First, safe passage of all civilians willing to leave the areas of current and expected confrontation in coordination with the International Committee of the Red Cross. Second, beyond humanitarian operations already taking place, a pause will allow for the safe delivery of life-saving humanitarian aid to people in the hardest hit areas such as Mariupol, Kherson, Donetsk and Luhansk. Humanitarian needs are dire. People do not have food, water, supplies to treat the sick or wounded or simply to live day to day. More than 12 million people need humanitarian assistance in Ukraine today. And of those, more than one third are in Mariupol, Kherson, Donetsk and Luhansk. We anticipate that this figure will increase to 15.7 million. That's about 40% of all Ukrainians still left in the country. Instead of celebration of a new life, this Easter coincides with the Russian offensive in eastern Ukraine. The intense concentration of forces and firepower makes this battle inevitably more violent, bloody, and destructive. The onslaught and terrible toll on civilians we have seen so far could pale in comparison to the horror that lies ahead. This cannot be allowed to happen. That's UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. The World Food Program warns an estimated 20 million people in drought-affected parts of Kenya, Ethiopia and Somalia could face catastrophic levels of hunger if the region is hit with a fourth consecutive year of drought. This is Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. The outlook is not good for the Horn of Africa. The rains have failed to come nearly a month into the current rainy season, which lasts through May. The past three years of drought have taken a heavy toll. The World Food Program reports crop failure in Ethiopia has plunged 7.2 million people into acute hunger and killed more than a million livestock. The situation is no better in Kenya, where escalating drought has left more than 3 million people short of food, including half a million who are facing emergency levels of hunger. In Somalia, the WFP says 6 million people, or 40% of the population, are food insecure, with more than 80,000 on the brink of famine. Speaking from the Kenyan capital, Nairobi, the WFP Regional Director for East Africa, Michael Dunford, says the number of hungry people could spiral from an estimated 14 million to 20 million if the rains fail to come yet again. The situation is bad. It continues to deteriorate. We're desperate for these rains to succeed. But even if they do, these populations are exhausted. The water sources are exhausted, the livestock are dying, the crops are failing, and we are heading to a very severe situation unless we're able to pull it back from the precipice. Dunford says there's anecdotal evidence that children already are dying from malnutrition-related causes because they are not able to get the nutritional feeding that could save their lives. 
He says the WFP is severely underfunded. It only has received 13% of a required $370 million. Since that appeal was launched in January, he says the number of people needing help has increased, as have the costs. He says the WFP now requires $473 million to scale up its operations over the next six months. Funding gap means that WFP is having to prioritize in such a way that the prevention of malnutrition, we now are going to have to focus primarily on the treatment. And at some point, even these programs will not have sufficient funding if the current trends continue and we will focus exclusively on uh, humanitarian feeding programs. Dunford says the fallout from the conflict in Ukraine is compounding the problems in the Horn of Africa. He says the conflict has sent food and fuel prices soaring to unprecedented highs. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. In other news, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has offered what he says is a, quote, wholehearted, unquote, apology for attending an illegal party during lockdown, but insists he didn't knowingly break rules or mislead Parliament and is brushing off course to resign. Johnson told lawmakers in the House of Commons that it simply did not occur to him that a birthday gathering complete with a cake was a party. Opposition politicians and some among the governing conservatives have called with increasing frustration for Johnson to quit since stories began to circulate late last year of parties in the Prime Minister's office and other government buildings in 2020 and 2021. The parties took place as meetings in the country where barred from meeting with friends and family or even attending funerals for their loved ones. For more on this story and other breaking news, visit our website at vonews.com. Remember to connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You are listening to VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedorfo in Washington. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa declared a state of disaster late Monday following deadly floods in the country's eastern KwaZulu-Natal province. The record floods have left more than 440 people dead, an estimated 40,000 people homeless, and damaged critical infrastructure and hundreds of schools. The declaration is expected to speed up much-needed aid to flood-hit areas, as Linda Giftash reports from Johannesburg for VOA. Only two weeks after South Africa lifted its disaster declaration for the coronavirus pandemic, the country has found itself in another crisis. The national government is immediately directing $68 million to clean up what officials have called catastrophic flooding that has left people homeless and without water or electricity. Imtiaz Suleiman is the head of the charity Gift of the Givers, which has been distributing aid since the floods hit last week. We're getting the job done, we're getting delivery done. Hot meals, hygiene packs, sanitary pads, diapers and uh, blankets and mattresses uh, and water for the areas, for the centres where the people were. It, it became a bigger need for water because they didn't realize that all the water pipes have been washed away. We try to get as much water to as many people as possible. While the city of Durban and the surrounding province of KwaZulu-Natal was the worst hit, other provinces like the Eastern Cape also saw flooding and deaths. Officials are still quantifying the damage to critical infrastructure like the Durban port, highways and telecommunications. The Minister of Cooperative Governance and Traditional Affairs, Nkosazana Dlamini Zuma, who is leading the response, told a media briefing Tuesday the scale of disaster requires a national response. In a way, gives hope and also is a vessel for coordination and rallying the entire nation, the entire government, 
and also the international support. Climate change was highlighted as a cause of the severity of the flooding, but poor infrastructure and city planning, with many informal settlements located on vulnerable, low-lying areas, was another factor. Flamini Zuma says while the disaster brought a great deal of sorrow, it's also posing an opportunity. We should be building back better, so nobody should build back in the riverbanks and also in floodplains, but also in some of the areas which are just geographically not right for residential areas. So it means as we build back, we must build better. But people living in the worst-hit communities, particularly informal settlements in low-lying areas, say their doubtful promises of better housing will be kept. The settlement called Mega Village in South Durban has been hit by floods in 2017 and 2019. Linda Giftash for VOA News, Johannesburg. The conviction of an Islamic State militant found guilty in the U.S. for his role in taking Americans hostage carries significance for other families seeking justice. VOS Juan Cajo has more. A two-week trial at Virginia Courthouse has brought a measure of justice to the families of Americans kidnapped and killed in Syria. A jury found British national al-Shafi al-Sheikh guilty for his role in holding captive 26 Western hostages on behalf of the Islamic State group. Al-Sheikh was part of an IS cell known by their hostages as the Beatles because of their British accents. He was captured in 2018 along with Alexander Koti and both were brought to the United States in 2020 to stand trial. Koti pleaded guilty in 2021. On April 14, a jury found Al-Sheikh guilty on eight counts related to his role in the hostage taking and killing of American journalists James Foley and Stephen Sotloff and aid workers Peter Kasig and Kayla Mueller. Families of those hostages welcomed the court ruling saying that justice has prevailed. As the trial opened, Diane Foley, whose son James was kidnapped in 2012, underscored the importance of a fair trial. I think we must do the opposite of what was done. You know, that to me is the huge contrast. I mean, the British and the American um, hostages were given nothing. They were treated like animals, they were tortured, starved, um, they received no, even no bit of justice. So um, I think it's important that we show how civilized people should react to others. That is why experts say this trial carried major significance. Stephanie Foget is an expert at the global security nonprofit, the Sufan Center. The U.S. hostage families have been vocal in their wishes for the individuals involved in the the abduction and the killing of their children to be held accountable for their actions in a U.S. court of law. So this case really demonstrates how these families were at the forefront and how they've been persistently fighting for their children. Those involved in terror activity, including kidnappings and killings, rarely face trial in the country where their victims were from. Randall Rogan is a professor of communication at Wake Forest University in North Carolina. For the U.S., I think for others outside of the U.S., it demonstrates the length to which the U.S. government and authorities will go to hold others accountable for the death of Americans outside of the United States, particularly in such uh, egregious circumstances. Al-Sheikh's trial opens the possibility for U.S. law enforcement agencies to pursue similar cases against foreign nationals responsible for crimes against U.S. citizens abroad, Rogan says.
It also offers a path to the families of others impacted by terror activities overseas who want justice. Again, Stephanie Foget of the Sufan Center. This may very well prove to be a model for families and survivors in the future. They may choose to look at this case and be like, this is what we want. This is the justice that we want for our loved ones. For that to happen in the U.S. again, Foget says, an effective multilateral cooperation with American allies and partners around the world must continue. Sirwan Kejo, VOA News, Washington. Hello, I'm Carol Castiel. Coming up, a conversation with former Hungarian ambassador to the United States, Andras Simonyi, about why the European Union must wean itself from dependence on Russian oil and gas. A senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, Simonyi also discusses the danger of the rise of nationalist parties in Europe, especially his native Hungary. That's Press Conference USA this Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America. international edition on the voice of america on behalf of the entire production team thank you so much for listening visit our website for in-depth coverage of world events and news 24 hours a day at voanews.com until next time i am chinero in washington wishing you a great day editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. When control of Hong Kong was transferred from Britain to the People's Republic of China in 1997, the PRC agreed to govern Hong Kong under the principle of one country, two systems. According to the Sino-British Joint Declaration, for 50 years the city would enjoy a high degree of autonomy, except in foreign and defense affairs, and the laws currently in force in Hong Kong would remain basically unchanged. But as the U.S. State Department's recent Hong Kong Policy Act report shows, the PRC is tightening its vice-like grip on the city as the 25th anniversary of Hong Kong's handover to Beijing approaches. In the words of Secretary of State Antony Blinken, over the past year, the People's Republic of China has continued to dismantle Hong Kong's democratic institutions, placed unprecedented pressure on the judiciary and stifled academic, cultural and press freedoms. Hong Kong's freedoms are diminishing while the PRC tightens its rule. The report notes that over the past year, PRC authorities took actions that eliminated the ability of Hong Kong's pro-democracy opposition to play a meaningful role in governance. Peaceful political expression critical of Beijing with a local administration was criminalized. Sweeping changes to Hong Kong's electoral system blocked the participation of political groups not approved by Beijing and greatly diminished Hong Kong voters' ability to elect representatives of their choice. 
Among other acts of repression, authorities shut down two of Hong Kong's largest independent media outlets, Apple Daily and Stand News, and forced the closure of the June 4th Museum, which commemorated the 1989 Tiananmen Square protests. Using the 2020 national security law as a pretext, authorities filed charges against more than 160 individuals and organizations. This number includes activists and politicians detained in February 2021 for holding a primary election to elect candidates who would represent the pro-democracy camp in the Legislative Council election. Authorities also arrested and prosecuted activists for speech critical of the central or local governments or their policies, including for comments or posts on social media. Beijing will ultimately force many of the city's best and brightest to flee, tarnishing Hong Kong's reputation and weakening its competitiveness. A fully functioning civil society, rule of law, and individual liberties form the bedrock on which vibrant societies grow, declared Secretary Blinken. We stand with the people of Hong Kong. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. Washington, Papa Bozet, D.C.